I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Acts chapters 15 through 17. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. In Acts chapter 15, we have the Jerusalem Council. It's a very important chapter in the book of Acts. Now, the book of Galatians, by the way, was written following this Jerusalem Council. Galatians was written to answer these questions once and for all. You may want to take a look at the notes on the book of Galatians in conjunction with the reading of chapter 15 here. Verse 1, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things." Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath." Paul and Barnabas had been preaching and discipling in Antioch, just north of Israel in Syria. That's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Then they get some visitors to lend them a teaching hand from Judea. Notice what these guest lecturers taught in verse 1. They said, 
Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Keep in mind, the church was a new entity here, 15 years or so old. It started with a virtually all-Jewish congregation on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem. So at that point in time, all the men in this new church had been circumcised according to Jewish law. These people were having considerable difficulty reconciling the place of Gentiles in this new entity, the church. Previously, if you wanted to become a Jew, you had to undergo the rite of circumcision. So it was understandable that many in the church in Jerusalem were still convinced that this would be a necessary ritual for those wanting to become a part of the church as well, even if you were a Gentile. In their minds, accepting Jesus as Savior included accepting Judaism as a foundation for one's faith. They viewed Christianity as a layer built upon Judaism. Then we see a reality that really complicates this discussion in verse 5. Right there in the church of Jerusalem were Pharisees who had gotten saved, but they retained their affiliation as Pharisees. They were particularly adamant about the fact that salvation required not only baptism, but circumcision as well. Not only so, but add to that the observance of all Jewish law by these new Gentile converts. So the first Jerusalem councils called to order to discuss the question of reasonable requirements for these new Gentile believers. Do we require them to be circumcised? Do we require them to keep the rituals of the law of Moses to which they've never been exposed before? Incidentally, many believers today are convinced that Christians are obligated to keep the Ten Commandments. Ironically, they categorically disregard the strict mandates of the Fourth Commandment, which is Sabbath-keeping, which, by the way, is always on a Saturday, without even acknowledging that they skipped one. If you'd like more information on that, then look at the article that I've written entitled The Sabbath Day, Why Don't Christians Observe It? It's under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. Now, pay close attention here to the decree issued from the Council of Jerusalem. You'll see that Gentile believers were not to be bound by the law of Moses, and that, by the way, includes the Ten Commandments. Since it's stated so clearly here, how is it that so many believers today are confused about the role of the Ten Commandments in Christianity? Now, the year here is around 49 AD. That's about the same time that Paul wrote Galatians. Of course, Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem to participate in this discussion. After all, they are the ones that had been responsible for preaching to countless Gentiles who subsequently had gotten saved. Peter was there also at this council. He had won the first Gentile converts after Pentecost. That's when he went to the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Peter makes a great speech with an excellent point in verse 10 when he says this, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Then in verse 12, it was time for Paul and Barnabas to report to these folks at the council about all the Gentiles who had gotten saved along with the accompanying validating miracles. We aren't given any additional details regarding their words. Finally, James in verse 13 stands up to pull it all together. He refers to Peter's presentation of the gospel to the Gentiles back in Acts chapter 10, but makes no mention of any points made by Paul or Barnabas in their speeches. He makes his strongest case by quoting, well, sort of quoting, Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. That's regarding the prophecy that Gentiles would be included in the Davidic kingdom. Then James recommends a course of action in verses 19 and 20. 
He says this, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. He suggests the reasoning for such a decree in verse 21 when he says this, For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. In other words, these Gentiles need to be considerate of the Jews in these Gentile cities, a suggestion which they agree to formalize and publish. Though written down and distributed, it hardly settles the issue, as we'll see in the remainder of the book of Acts, as well as in the epistles of Paul later on. Now, if you're looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, you'll see a map showing Paul's course for his second missionary journey. We then continue with how do we make everybody happy on this issue in verses 22 to 35 of Acts chapter 15. Reading verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your soul, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So what is it we're going to require from these Gentiles who've gotten saved? Many of them are completely unfamiliar with the requirements of the Mosaic Law. They've never even heard of the Ten Commandments. Well, please understand, these Gentiles were likely ignorant on everything Jewish. The battle lines are drawn. On the one side, you have the born-again Pharisees who want them to become Jewish proselytes as a prerequisite to becoming part of the church. But then on the other hand, Paul and Barnabas say to just leave them alone. There's nothing in the law of Moses that really pertains to them. James actually acknowledges the Gentile exemption from keeping the law of Moses in verse 24. That's when he refers to the false doctrine that had been taught to the Gentiles. He says, Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your soul, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. James comes up with a compromise. Make no mistake about it, it was just a compromise. 
We'll see in Acts chapter 21, verses 15 through 26, that it really didn't settle the issue for the staunch legalist in the church with regard to Paul's ministry, nor did it settle anything for Paul and Barnabas. They more or less go on to disregard the content of this compromise after this council, although we do see in Acts chapter 16, verse 4, that Paul was faithful in citing it immediately after departing from Jerusalem to embark on his second missionary journey. However, what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and the continuation of that discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, some 10 years later, regarding meat offered to idols, well, that completely disregards the ruling of this council. Now, give James credit, though. He did exercise great statesmanship in holding together this alliance of such diverse believers. You'll notice how carefully worded is the letter that James wrote regarding this issue in Acts chapter 15, verse 29. He says, "...that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell." It strikes me as interesting that James falls short of declaring these new suggestions to be laws for the Gentiles to observe. He simply concludes that in observing this subset of Jewish law restrictions, that they would, as he says, do well. Paul and Barnabas are then accompanied by two others, Judas and Silas, as witnesses of the Jerusalem Council's decision. One of these witnesses, Silas, later accompanies Paul on his second missionary journey, as we'll see more about him in Acts chapter 16. This Silas is the same individual identified in Paul's epistles as Silvanus in 2 Corinthians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, and 1 Peter chapter 5. Their first stop is Antioch, a long trip from Jerusalem, way up in Syria, about a 300-mile trip or so. They immediately gather the converts there and deliver the official message from Jerusalem. Let me offer one more admonition regarding this event in the whole context of the book of Acts. This book is an accurate account of the events of the early church. That does not mean that everything that was done and said by godly men is to be emulated and practiced by us. We are always to use the epistles of the New Testament to validate practices in the book of Acts. Now, here's a prime example. The Jewish practice mentioned here of abstaining from blood makes it completely unacceptable for one to eat a steak that's, well, cooked rare. This restriction actually predates the law of Moses all the way back to the covenant that God made with Noah back in Genesis chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. And by the way, you'll never catch a practicing Orthodox Jew eating a rare steak. However, in the time in which this was written, this compromise was designed to cause as little offense as possible by those Gentiles toward the Jews. Don't take this as a doctrine for all time. Enjoy your steaks the way you like them cooked. Most of all, read the book of Acts in context, just like you read the activities of God-fearing men in the Old Testament in context. They didn't always do or say the right thing, but a lesson was always learned. If you'd like more information regarding the proper way to view the book of Acts, then look again at the introduction on the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1 in those notes. Oh, one more thing. Notice that these Gentile believers were exempted from keeping the Mosaic Law. That, by the way, includes the Ten Commandments, and that was as a result of this decree from Jerusalem. We see the team splits up in verses 36 to 41 of chapter 15. Reading now verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord, and see how they are doing. 
Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So in this passage, Paul wants to revisit all the churches that have been established. Barnabas wants to take John Mark along, but Paul says no. As a result, Barnabas and John Mark head out to minister together, and Paul picks up Silas as his missionary companion for his second missionary journey. And as I mentioned, I've included a map to show you the trip on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today. However, there seems to be more to the story regarding the split between Paul and Barnabas here. Let's look at some information that we know about John Mark. First of all, it's generally accepted that John Mark was the writer of the Gospel of Mark. According to Colossians 4, verse 10, he was the cousin of Barnabas. Peter refers to him as my son in 1 Peter 5, verse 13. That's an indication that Peter may have been the one who led him to the Lord. John Mark first began accompanying Paul on his first missionary journey in Acts 12, verse 25, along with Barnabas. John Mark left Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. This was just prior to an intense concentration of ministry focused on Gentile salvation. Barnabas had withdrawn from Paul and the Gentiles in Galatians chapter 2, verse 13, an action for which Paul criticized both Peter and John Mark. At this point in time, Paul and Barnabas are back in Jerusalem before the council. It's been two years or so since John Mark left Paul and Barnabas. Now John Mark wants to rejoin them, and Paul is absolutely against it. Could it be that Paul could not get past the failure of John Mark to be loyal to the ministry back in Acts chapter 13 when he left first time? Could it be that John Mark, a Jew, had left Paul and Barnabas back in Acts chapter 13 because of a disapproval of their intense ministering to the Gentiles instead of to Jews? Well, perhaps so. And now Paul doesn't want him back on the ministry team. In chapter 16, we come to Timothy joining Paul, verse 1. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Timothy was a great find here, and he wanted to accompany Paul and Silas on their missionary journey. There was a problem, though. Timothy wasn't Jewish. His mother was Jewish, but it was traditionally the father that determined one's heritage. Moreover, Timothy had been raised as a Greek without the rite of circumcision. Realizing that this would be a detriment to reaching Jews for Christ, Paul, being a Pharisee, takes Timothy through the proselyte ritual to Judaism, which included circumcision. Now, Timothy, as a Christian missionary, also fulfilled the Jewish expectations of those who were still insistent that the gateway to Christianity was through Judaism. Now, you've got to understand this. This was done for the sake of testimony. It was not done as a mandate for Christians to keep the Jewish law. 
We see here that Paul, Silas, and Timothy head through predominantly Gentile cities preaching the gospel. They are now armed with the decree of the Jerusalem Council, which exempts Gentiles from having to go through the Jewish passage before becoming Christians. Notice verse 4. It says, And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. For the first time, Paul was able to preach to the Gentiles the unfettered gospel with the formal blessing of the Jerusalem church. And beginning in verse 6 of chapter 16, Paul gets a vision to go over into Macedonia. Verse 6. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So while on his missionary journey, Paul has a dream. Come over into Macedonia and help us. That's enough for Paul. It's off to Macedonia, a Roman province lying north of Greece. This is way north and west of Paul's trip into Asia Minor. This is the area where Philippi and Thessalonica are located. In chapter 16, beginning in verse 11, we see a woman named Lydia who gets saved. Verse 11. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Here Lydia was a businesswoman. She sold purple dye. After getting saved, she offers Paul and Silas lodging there in Philippi. Isn't God good? Then in chapter 16, beginning with verse 16, Paul and Silas, well, they end up in prison. Verse 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Well, as it turns out, the Romans in Philippi aren't too keen on Paul and Silas either. 
So here's a gal who was demon-possessed, enabling her to successfully engage in fortune-telling. She continues to follow Paul and Silas around proclaiming the truth, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. After a few days of this, Paul's had enough, and he commands this demon which enabled her to tell fortunes to leave her. Management is very unhappy, beats them and throws them into jail as disruptive Jews. Then we see in verses 25 to 40 of chapter 16 that the jailer gets saved, verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. Immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officer, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Well, while they're in jail, there's a great earthquake. Not just any kind of an earthquake, but one that causes the jail doors to open and their binding chains to fall off. This makes the jailer suicidal. Not to worry, though. Nobody leaves. The jailer is so touched by this incident that he asks to be saved and takes them home to meet the family, all of whom also get saved. The next day, the officials practically have to beg Paul and Silas to leave the jail and to leave their town. Paul had pointed out that he was beaten without cause, and he was a Roman citizen. These Roman officials were anxious to have this legal misunderstanding out of the way. So after some goodbyes, they do leave town. Now there's a real success story. In chapter 17, we continue to follow Paul and Silas. They go to Thessalonica, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This is Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and the great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, 
These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So in Thessalonica, Paul just preaches a standard message about Christ being the Messiah. He gets some converts there, but the influential Jews stir up a mob against them, who subsequently assault the home of their host, Jason. These Jews falsified their testimonies, though, said that Paul was teaching another king besides Caesar. You must admit that was quite hypocritical on the part of those jealous Jews to take the messianic teaching to which they subscribed and use it against Paul and Silas. It results in the mob trial of some of Paul's converts. They finally let them go, but due to the controversy, it was just time to move on. And it's off to Berea, which we read about in verses 10 through 15 of chapter 17. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. Both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Well, they get a better reception in Berea, but those pesky Jews in Thessalonica hear about their success, and they send people over to stir up the Bereans as well. Silas and Timothy stay, but... Paul takes off for Athens. Paul makes a hasty departure from Berea, and he instructs Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. They don't actually join him again until Paul reaches Corinth in Acts chapter 18, verse 5. Then we have the ministry to the Athenians, the people in Athens. They were pretty open-minded. We take that up in verse 16 of chapter 17. Now, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. 
For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So Paul begins his ministry in Athens by going into the synagogues and preaching to the Jews. It's not long, however, before the Greeks in Athens become extremely curious about this new message of Jesus that Paul is preaching. They want in on this action. Let me read you a note from Easton's Bible Dictionary about the city of Athens. I quote, The capital of Attica, the most celebrated city of the ancient world, the seat of Greek literature and art during the golden period of Grecian history. Its inhabitants were fond of novelty, Acts 17.21, and were remarkable for their zeal in the worship of the gods. It was a sarcastic saying of the Roman satirist that it was easier to find a god at Athens than a man. And I end the quote. In the process of his preaching, Paul's ideas are realized to be new material to the philosophy-hungry Athenians. He's then asked by the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers to appear before the Areopagus, the council that met in the open air on Mars Hill. He addresses the issue of their superstition. They'd studied philosophy and reason for centuries to the point that they really had no core beliefs any longer, just too smart for their own good. By the way, you got to love Paul's introduction to these Greek philosophers in verse 23. He says, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Paul says, Hey, I know your unknown God. Then in verses 24 to 31, Paul zips through several of their principles of philosophy, demonstrating that while they have questions, Jesus is that answer. He gets mixed reviews on this message. With some converts, we see in verse 34, the good news is that nobody tried to stone him when he preached the truth there. Besides, these Athenians were too sophisticated to act violently toward new knowledge. It's obvious that their God had become philosophy itself. By the way, if you'd like to know a little more about the Epicureans and Stoics, then I've included a little bit of a description in a yellow box to the right side of the written notes for BibleTrack.org for today. Incidentally, notice verse 26 as Paul makes reference to the activities of God when he says, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Paul was undoubtedly referencing the Song of Moses, where in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, that song says, When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. In other words, Moses' song proclaims that the dividing of the nations facilitated the apportionment of designated land for his chosen people, Israel. This concludes our podcast for today. 
I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.